Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi. Before we begin, I want to recommend a new history podcast that's just arrived on the scene. It tells the story of a famous people, a nation of warriors and traders who appeared one day in ancient Denmark and then made their mark on the old world and the new. Allow me to introduce the History of Vikings podcast. Fresh out of the gate, the show has just released its 10th episode and is already 5-star rated on iTunes. From the first origins of the Vikings and their sudden appearance at Lindisfarne, through the age of heroes and gods, and even into the nitty-gritty of Viking battle, raiders, shield maidens, Asgardian gods and longboats, it's all there in great depth and great detail. The History of Vikings podcast by Noah Tetzner. Check it out at thehistoryofvikings.com, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. I recommend it. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 96, The Colossi of Memnon. Today, we complete our look at the great temples of Amunhotep III, King of Egypt. We are going to visit the king's mortuary temple, the magnificent structure dedicated to his well-being in the afterlife. We will also see the colossal statues, which are the last remnants of this temple. Today's episode is brought to you by Stefan Murison and Kate Johnson, who donated to the show recently. Kate, Stefan, thank you kindly. May Anubis, Lord of the Sacred Land, who is upon his mountain, watch over your tomb and guard you from all dangers. To everyone listening, please enjoy the show. Today's episode sits outside of our main narrative, time-wise. The reason for this is simple. The monument we are talking about was constructed over the course of decades, and has a legacy that stretches more than 2,000 years. Describing this monument in any detail requires a very broad view. It is time to explore a lost monument, a structure which, in its heyday, was a magnificent edifice, but now only shadows remain. Today's episode crosses over between what we see, what we imagine, and what we can reconstruct. It also crosses between history and myth. If you visit Thebes, Luxor today, odds are your itinerary will include a brief stop-off at a curious monument. On the west bank of the Nile, not far from the water's edge, a flat expanse of ground marks a heritage site. The soil is black and firm, weeds sprout here and there, a cluster of trees gives some shade. Occasional patches of dusty dirt break the deep hues of the old floodplain, and birds and critters flit about among the foliage. Standing alone in this field is a strange sight, a pair of statues, broken and crumbling. 
What do you notice first is their size. They are immense. 18 meters tall, or 20 yards, these statues tower above everything around them. Even though the local ground level has risen over the millennia and the roadway next door is somewhat higher, these statues are still truly colossal. Humans walking past seem like ants. The ants seem like... um... something. The statues are mighty sentinels which depict a long dead pharaoh and guard a long forgotten site. The pharaoh is shown seated on his throne, he wears the royal headdress, and his hands rest upon his knees. Beside him, miniature statues of his wife and his mother guard his legs. These statues are miniature only by comparison, they are still much larger than life-size. The two mighty statues, the colossi, are broken, partly ruined. Thanks to millennia of erosion and earthquakes, they have been damaged beyond recognition. The faces are mere lumps, the once intricately carved clothing now just traces. At the bottom of the statues, a few details remain, including some hieroglyphic inscriptions and graffiti carved by ancient and more recent visitors. Ever since they were built, the mighty colossi have been a tourist attraction, and their fame today is but a small note in a long legacy of sightseeing. These two statues, which once depicted the pharaoh Amun-hotep III in all his splendor, are now known as the Colossi of Memnon. I'll get into the reasons for their name, and the stories which go with them, in the second half of the episode. First, I want to explore the statues as they would have appeared back when they were new. Back in the reign of Amunhotep III, starting around 1400 BCE, labourers by the hundreds helped to build a singularly vast structure at Thebes. Across 400,000 square metres, over 4 million square feet, a temple rose from the floodplains west of the holy city. It is the largest temple ever commissioned in Egypt, a temple dedicated to just one man. Is it worth a tour? You bet. The mortuary temple of Amunhotep III was constructed between Regnal Year II and Regnal Year Thirty, approximately. It covered a huge area and was filled with some of the most elaborate statuary and decoration designed in the whole 18th dynasty. This monument was beyond anything, a shining example of New Kingdom pharaonic splendour, and it all started with two colossal statues. The Colossi of Memnon stand at what was once the outer gateway or pylon of the temple. Behind them, a huge mud-brick wall rose up to guard the sanctuary and shield it from prying eyes. This wall was more than 700 metres by 500 metres, encompassing a truly immense area. At the very front, the pylon gateways and the Colossi marked the entrance. In their heyday, they would have been dazzling, vividly painted colours to mark out the features of the statues. Skin of a deep or reddish brown, headdress of blue and gold, eyes bright and shining. A kilt of pure white plaster, necklace of blues, reds and golds. On the brow, gold-painted uraei, perhaps even gilded to catch the sun. At the knees, the statues of Queen and Queen Mother were resplendent in white gowns, with deep black hair, creamy skin, and golden ornaments. 
When fresh and new, the colossal statues were a vivid portrayal of the pharaoh and his family, visible far and wide, and watching over their kingdom with a calm, impassive gaze. Anyone walking or sailing past the Nile would feel the statues watching them. They might make a gesture, utter a quick invocation of the pharaoh's name, or a prayer for his well-being. A Hail Mary for Amunhotep. Behind the statues, the pylons were white plastered mud brick, possibly undecorated, with simple gilding at the tops, gold edging to shine in the daylight. In the front, flagpoles stood tall, and bright pennants fluttered in the breeze. The effect was of a pristine, brand new structure, a monument perfect in its beauty. Its splendour hinted at wonders inside, and the symbolic purpose of the temple itself. To explore that, we need to go inside. We pass the two colossi and the pylon, and enter the first courtyard. An unexpected sight greets us. Another pylon, and another pair of colossal statues. The colossi of Memnon were not alone. Once they had siblings, a second pair in the first courtyard of the temple. These second colossi were smaller than the first, but still much larger than life-size, 14 meters tall, or 15 yards. They were made of quartzite, brightly painted, just like their larger cousins, and they were rediscovered, buried in mud, where they had fallen long ago. Like the colossi of Memnon, this second pair show the king seated upon his throne, flanked by figures of his wife and mother. Today, they have been restored to their position, and now stand before the second pylon of the temple, a lingering trace of what was once an immense wall and gate. The second colossi are fascinating, but essentially the same as the larger ones, just slightly smaller. So let's carry on, through the second gateway, past the second pair of statues. We enter into the next courtyard, and what do we find? Two more colossi! Yes, that's right, the Colossi of Memnon actually had four siblings for a total of six grand statues which guarded the pylons of the temple. As we proceed deeper into the sanctuary, the statues get incrementally smaller. This third pair stand about 11 metres or 12 yards tall. Still huge, but the effect is clear. The further into the temple we go, the smaller and more intimate everything becomes, as if we are being drawn deeper and deeper into the sanctuary, the walls closing in around us. So, three pylons, six grand statues. This was the entranceway to the great mortuary temple of Amunhotep III. Anyone passing through, whether a priest or a porter, or the king himself, could only marvel at the sheer spectacle and scale of this monument. Very few temples have so many pylons, and no mortuary temples are this elaborate. The structure which Amunhotep III commissioned was beyond anything that had been built previously. Even Hatshepsut's monument was a pale shadow in comparison. Having passed the third pylon and the third pair of colossi, we arrive at the main precinct. We are standing at the start of a long processional road. Paved in stone, this roadway is flanked on both sides by an avenue of sphinxes. Images of the king as a lion with a human head stretch before us for over a hundred metres. 
their smiling faces with almond-shaped eyes, full lips and bright headdresses, give a genial greeting to those who enter. Above us, the sun god shines down on this beautiful roadway. We stroll along, marvelling at the sights and ignoring the hundreds of men and women who move through this space. The temple bustled with activity, a workplace for vast numbers of artists, craftsmen, builders, servants, priests and porters. Everyone with any great skill was probably employed here over the many years in which the temple was constructed. Trying to ignore the crowd, we simply gaze in awe on the spectacle which they are creating. Approaching the end of the Avenue of Sphinxes, we now enter into the main temple. We pass a high wall and enter into a massive open space. This is a courtyard ringed with columns, forming a vast place of congregation. In sheer dimensions, this courtyard is immense, 85 metres on each side, making it larger than the entire sanctuary of Hatshepsut at Deir al-Bahari. Built to hold hundreds, the courtyard is ringed by columns, which stand more than 14 metres tall, the largest in Thebes. Between the columns, statues of the pharaoh fill the spaces. On the northern side of the court, the statues are quartzite. On the southern, granite. This division symbolizes the building materials of Lower and Upper Egypt respectively. The quartzite quarries near Akmim and the granite quarries near Elephantine. The statues, which smile serenely, are beautiful works of sculpture. When new, this courtyard would have burst with the vibrant colours of painted images and columns. At the entrance to this courtyard, sculptors are erecting a pair of stone stelae. These stelae, commissioned by the king, describe the great works of Amunhotep in the city of Thebes. Among the records of Karnak, Luxor and the Maru viewing place, which we visited last episode, these stelae also describe the mortuary temple in which we now stand. Quote, the king made as his monument for his father Amun, lord of the thrones of the two lands, the building for him of an august temple on the west side of Thebes. It was a monument of eternity and everlastingness, of fine sandstone worked with gold throughout. The pavements were made pure with silver, all its doors with fine gold. It is very wide and great and decorated enduringly. It is adorned with this very great monument, the stela, and enriched with statues of the Lord, made of granite from Yebu, of grit stone, and all kinds of costly stones worked in enduring craftsmanship. Their height rises to heaven. End quote. It seems that this was a decadent and wealthy temple, at least according to the description. The archaeology does bear this out, and we'll cover that in one moment. Amunhotep spared no expense, and over the course of decades of building and decorating, the mortuary temple became, perhaps, the most lavish ever seen. From its gilded pylons to its painted colossi, its hundreds of statues and its offering tables piled with goods, the temple was an ornate, decadent piece of work. Based on what we know of its size and design, Amunhotep's description here probably does not exaggerate too much. We cross this courtyard, all 85 metres of it. We pass another wall made of mud brick, and then enter a small hypostyle hall. 
This hall, a roofed space filled with columns, marks our entrance into the true hidden sanctuary of the temple. Here, the space begins to darken as roofs cover the halls and only small windows let in the light. We approach the Hall of the King. The inner sanctum of the mortuary temple is so denuded and destroyed today that we can't even reconstruct it. But on the basis of similar works at Luxor and Karnak, we can guess that it was a small rectangular room surrounded by subsidiary shrines and storerooms. In the very centre, dark shrines housed golden statues, images of gods like Amun, Anubis, Hathor and Sakmet. These statues would receive daily offerings and prayers on behalf of Pharaoh. Statues of the king, too, would be given sustenance and life. Here, in the sacred centre, the spirit or ka of the king was worshipped daily. The mortuary temple of Amunhotep III had one simple purpose. It was designed, built and created to serve and sustain the ka of the king in his eternal rest. When the king went to the afterlife, or flew to heaven as they said, it was now the job of the priests of this temple to sustain his soul and give it energy for all eternity. To that end, the priests would worship statues of the king and gods who could protect him. As a result, Amunhotep's mortuary temple was filled with living statues. Pieces of statues have been found all over the site and recovered from different regions over the millennia. On the basis of what survives, coupled with the scale of the temple itself, we can estimate that this complex once housed hundreds, literally hundreds, of stone statues. There were images of the king, like seated statues, sphinxes, and statues in the form of Osiris. There were images of the gods, in particular Sakmet the lioness, who had power to heal the king when he was sick. There were also sphinxes with Anubis heads for the mortuary cult itself. There was at least one statue of a hippopotamus, life-sized and made of alabaster. The whole complex was filled with images of gods and kings, symbols of the divine and the pharaoh. They were there for worship, to receive offerings, and to give the great gods of the land a presence in this most spectacular of temples. We're not sure exactly how many statues stood there, or how many different gods were represented, but it's a fair bet to say that a lot of them had a stake in this sacred complex. Finally, as a last addition to the holy space, Amunhotep commissioned another, smaller temple as part of the larger complex. This second temple was in the northwest corner of the enclosure, and it was dedicated to the god Ptah. Or rather, it was dedicated to a form of Ptah called Ptah Sokar Osiris. This form of Ptah was an underworld deity, a union between the great creator of Memphis, Osiris the lord of Abydos, and Sokar the knightly form of Re. Three gods, whose cults ruled in the northern half of the land, were worshipped together in this small temple. The temple of Ptah Sokar Osiris in the northwest corner served to make the larger mortuary temple a sort of focal point for all the religious energy of the land. If Karnak and Luxor were just across the river animating Amun, it was also appropriate to have a sanctuary for great gods of the north. 
Osiris, Ptah, Re, all deserved a place in the temple of Amunhotep. So with the addition of this little sanctuary, the pharaoh ensured that every creator and god of the afterlife had a place in the grandest temple of all. So as the mortuary temple began to rise, and eventually went into operation, it became the centre of Egypt's religious power. Amunhotep, greatest pharaoh of all, made his mortuary temple the most important in the land. With so much going on in this temple, it is amazing that I haven't yet got to the pièce de résistance. You see, the temple was not just the largest enclosure in Thebes, not just a monument of surpassing grandeur and spectacle, not just the largest repository of art and statues this side of Karnak, not just all of that. The temple was also a giant symbol. The temple of Amunhotep III was built on the Nile floodplain, right near to the water. Every year, when the inundation began, the river would overflow its banks and cover that floodplain in water. When the river did this, the life-giving waters of the Nile would cover the land around the temple and even enter the enclosure itself. The water would flood in, past the colossi, past the pylons, past the avenue of sphinxes, and surround the statues which probably filled many of the empty spaces. But it wouldn't enter the inner core of the temple. The main sanctuary at the very centre of the temple was built on a slightly elevated area, so the water would just lap up against the sides of that. The effect was as if the core of the temple was an island in the midst of the inundation. Water would surround the temple itself, fill the outer areas, but leave the core sanctuary protected. This island had a powerful symbolic value. If we remember back to the creation of the world, in the very earliest episodes of the podcast, we might remember that the universe had begun when a mound of earth, or an island, emerged from the infinite waters of the noon. Well, Amunhotep's temple now became a representation of that primeval mound. It was a new center of creation, located at Thebes, which emerged from the waters of the Nile, once every year. It's hard to convey in words what a powerful symbol this must have been to anyone walking past the temple, or sailing past, at the time of the annual flood. The mortuary complex of Amunhotep III must have seemed like a bastion rising from the waters of the Nile itself, as if the king's power was so great he had attained the majesty of the creator gods themselves. Of course, this is what the pharaoh intended, we assume. But the effect, especially on the devout, must have been profound. Then, when you think about how many different gods' statues appeared in the temple, it must have seemed as if every year at the time of the Nile flood, a great congregation of the gods was taking place at the very point of creation. This temple was an absolute unity of divine symbolism. The mortuary temple of Amunhotep III was, when constructed, the most important temple in Thebes, and perhaps the most important temple in the whole land. Now this isn't to take away from the monuments and power of Karnak, Luxor, or Heliopolis, or Abydos. Simply to say that Amunhotep III planned something truly unique, something that was never replicated again in the annals of the Egyptian pharaohs. Why was it never replicated? Well, 
That one is pretty easy to see. The mortuary complex of the king was located on the Nile floodplain, and this did give it a great deal of symbolic value. But it was also a problem. The foundations of the temple were not particularly strong, certainly not as strong as they might have been had he built his temple more to the west, on the desert grounds west of Thebes. On the Nile floodplain, the ground was less stable, and the temple was uniquely vulnerable to the depredations of nature. Ironically, the Nile flood itself was the first cause of damage. Huge sections of this temple were not made of stone, but rather of mud brick, and the water which came in year in, year out, slowly damaged this mud brick to the point that it became unstable. Then, about 150 to 200 years after Amunhotep III, a large earthquake seems to have struck the region of Thebes. Sitting down on the Nile floodplain, and with its foundations already weak and shaky, the mortuary temple could not withstand the strain of a sudden burst of seismic energy. When that earthquake struck, somewhere around 1200 BCE, the whole mortuary temple collapsed, its masonry fell to the ground, and the grand edifice, which had once been the centre of Theban religious life, became a ruin. Over the following decades and centuries, the temple was scavenged for its stone masonry. Other parts of it were buried in mud, and these are now being excavated and reconstructed. But huge swathes of the mortuary temple were demolished by later Egyptians. Scavengers came to haul bricks and pieces away for use in their own constructions. So, the mortuary temple of Amunhotep III had a surprisingly short life, less than 200 years. Still, it was surely impressive while it lasted, a massive primeval mound dominating western Thebes, a monument sitting at the heart of Egypt's divine creation. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The mortuary temple of Amunhotep III was a masterpiece of Egyptian religious construction. 1300 years later, the temple was long gone. And all that remained visible were the two magnificent colossi which stood silent sentinels next to the River Nile. Silent? Well, not quite. 
By the time Roman and Greek writers came to record the area, the colossal statues were all that remained. But those statues had developed a reputation of their own. In this second chapter of the episode, we explore the legacy of the so-called Colossi of Memnon and how they gained their fame. In 25 BCE, a Roman prefect visited the city of Thebes. He came on behalf of the Emperor Augustus. His name was Aelius Gallus. Gallus made a tour of Thebes, examining the city and its monuments. Accompanying him, a writer named Strabo came to view the country of Egypt as well. Strabo, a Greek, was impressed with the land and he documented it in great detail. Thanks to his writings, we know a little something of a Roman visit to the temple of Amunhotep. In 25 BCE, the great Colossi were all that remained of the mortuary temple. Traces remained here and there, bits of stone half buried in mud, broken sculptures, but as Strabo and Gallus approached the Colossi, they must have seemed like lonely sentinels watching over the River Nile. Strabo and Gallus came to view the statues, but also to witness something rather unusual. It was said that the statues of Amunhotep, the Colossi of Memnon, were known to sing. As the sun rose each morning, the northernmost statue would supposedly emit a kind of sound, like a keening moan or a hum. We have no idea what this sounded like exactly, but Strabo came to witness the phenomenon, and he described it with obvious satisfaction. Strabo? Here are two colossi, which are near one another, and are each made of a single stone. One of them is fully preserved, but the other one fell when an earthquake took place, so it is said. It is believed that once every day a noise, like a slight blow, emanates from the part of the latter statue, which remains on its throne. I, too, when I was present at the place with Elias Gallus and his crowd of associates, heard the noise at about the first hour of the day. Whether the noise came from the Colossus, or whether it was made on purpose by a man, I am unable to confirm. On account of this uncertainty, I would believe anything else than the idea that the sound came from the stones themselves. Oh, Strabo, you old skeptic. Strabo describes the sound that the Colossus made as like a slight blow, which makes me imagine the sound you get from letting the air out of a tyre, or a sort of sigh. I also can't help imagine it as something quite deep and sonorous. Given the size of these statues, I feel they should be making very ominous, echoing groans. Something like everyone's favourite modern Colossus. Probably not that. That was Godzilla. I just really love that sound, and I can't help but imagine the Colossi of Memnon making a groan like that. Anyway, the sound which the Colossi made was quite possibly a real phenomenon. The best theory goes like this. In 27 BCE, just a couple years before Strabo visited, an earthquake split one of the colossal statues at its core. Each of these colossi was carved from a single block of stone, which made them strong, but also susceptible to fracture. Now, the earthquake may have created a fissure at the core of the statue, a tiny gap in which air and moisture would collect. 
Every night, as the statues cooled from the day, dew and air would collect in that fissure. So far, so good. But every morning, as the sun rose, the statues began to warm up again. The stone expanded slightly at this time. Just a tiny bit, but enough. As the stone expanded in the growing heat, it pushed that moisture and air back out of the fissure. It's possible that this was expelled in a slow, whispering moan, which echoed out of the statue and across the fields. Onlookers, watching or just working nearby, would hear the dawn greeted as Amunhotep's colossi groaned in the morning light. The statues sang every dawn, and it wasn't long before they were a tourist attraction. Strabo was suspicious of the groan. Although he witnessed it firsthand and his description is great, he still offered some doubts. Strabo suggested that the sound might have been made by a man hiding behind the statue. Now, we know from later Egyptian history that this kind of sound or speech of the god might have been made by a priest hiding in certain temples. But I think Strabo's suspicion probably was not needed. The statues, quite possibly, did make this sound. The sound, as near as we can tell, was real, and the explanation for it seems rational enough. Granted, I'm not an engineer, but it makes sense to me. Sadly, Strabo's record is one of the few complete ones we have, and we can't test it today. Why? Well, about 200 years after Strabo's visit, a Roman emperor came to see the colossal statues. His name was Septimius Severus, and he was a pious man. When the emperor gazed upon the cracked colossi of this long-dead pharaoh, he felt a need to restore the image to its glorious past. So Septimius ordered stonemasons to repair the statues of their cracks. Men laid new stone blocks on the degraded colossus, and when they did so, they repaired that fissure as best as they could. This act, although done with the best intentions, was a historically tragic one. Now repaired, the statue no longer groaned in the light of the dawn. Today, the monument is silent once more. Apart from their singing, Amunhotep's great statues also developed a slightly unusual reputation. They became associated with a legendary hero, a man who fought in the Trojan War, and even battled with Achilles himself. This hero's name was Memnon, king of Ethiopia, and through a convoluted mythology, he and the statues of Amunhotep III became intertwined. In this last section, let's look at how Amunhotep's statues became known as the Colossi of Memnon. Memnon, king of Ethiopia, fought at Troy on the side of the Trojans. He came to the city after the death of Prince Hector, and along with the fabled Amazons, Memnon and his Ethiopians were a second wave of assistance to the doomed city. Memnon, the great hero, very nearly turned the tide. As the fighting at Troy dragged on, heroes of both sides fell in battle. Eventually, Memnon and Achilles came head-to-head in a duel, which must have been one of the great battles of the war. Both clad in divinely made armour, and supremely talented in battle, Achilles and Memnon were at the peak of their game. Their duel was like Bruce Lee vs Jackie Chan, beyond anything you or I could hope to match. 
As the fight began, Memnon drew the first blood, cutting Achilles on the arm. But Zeus and fate decreed the day. Achilles overcame Memnon and brought him down with a sword through the heart. The king of Ethiopia fell on the field, and the doom of Troy drew ever nearer with his passing. The death of Memnon was not a total loss for the Trojans. Fate, long planning Achilles' fall, decreed that when Memnon died, Achilles would follow soon after. Sure enough, as the battle raged, Achilles pushed too far ahead. He came under the shadow of Troy's gate, and there fell to the arrows of Prince Paris. Memnon and Achilles fell on the same day of the war. Their deaths were parallel losses for the warring sides. The two greatest warriors were now gone. So the legacy of Memnon, king of Ethiopia, is inextricably bound up with Greece's greatest hero. Fittingly, it is also bound up with the most resplendent pharaoh that Egypt ever produced. It may seem like a strange leap to get from a pharaoh of Egypt to a hero of the Trojan War. Even if that hero is the king of Ethiopia, we have to wonder, why are the great statues of Amunhotep known as the Colossi of Memnon? Well, there are two possible explanations for this. Firstly, the name of Memnon is, even apart from the statues, bound up with that of Amunhotep. The Greek historian Manetho, writing about Amunhotep III, described him as Amenophis, who is thought to be Memnon. Now, Memnon was writing long after the Trojan epics were composed, so he was channeling the legacy of that myth. But why are the names associated? Well, there is possibly a connection between the name Memnon and the throne name of Amunhotep. The pharaoh's throne name was Neb Ma'at Re, but in the surviving archives from contemporary cultures, in particular the Hittites, Neb Ma'at Re is written as Memuria. Now that's just a foreign way of saying Neb Ma'at Re, but it seems that the pronunciation of a king's name could blur quite a bit over great distance and in different cultures. Heck, for all we know, the casual Egyptian might have actually pronounced Neb Ma'at Re as something closer to Nemare. It's not a big leap from that to Memuria. Centuries after Amunhotep III, the name Neb Ma'at Re, or Nemuria, might have blurred into something like Memnon or Memon. As the Greek poets, not just Homer, but others too, were composing the various epics of the Trojan War, the figure of Memnon may have been inspired, in part, by the legacy of Amunhotep III. Now that's an interesting theory, but it's probably not the whole story. Because Memnon is a mythological figure, his whole backstory includes aspects of theology and divinity. This divine influence probably played a big role in forging a connection between the pharaoh and the warrior. Memnon was the son of a goddess called Aeos, or the Dawn. This meant he was associated with the sunrise. He was a literal son of the rising sun. Can you see where this is going? Every day at dawn, the statue of Amunhotep seemed to sing with the rising of the sun. To the ancient observer, especially a person of poetic or mystical inclinations, it might have seemed like the Colossus was greeting the sun, perhaps uttering a supernatural hymn or offering. Putting this together with the ancestry of Memnon, a poet might easily have determined that the Colossus was greeting its mother, the dawn goddess. Thus, 
a statue gained a name which has stuck with it for 2,000 years. So it seems that Neb Ma'at Re, Amunhotep, the son of Re, and Memnon of Ethiopia, the son of the dawn, became intertwined in ancient Greek thought. In fact, this association became so strong that some Greek writers called the whole western half of Thebes the Memnonium. In other words, the monuments of Amunhotep III defined the west bank of the city. Had his mortuary temple survived, we might still call it that. Today, the temple is gone, but its legacy remains, symbolized by the great colossi of the king. The colossi of Memnon stand tall, silent guardians of a pharaoh whose legacy is truly immortal. We come to the end of today's episode. Next time, we'll rejoin the chronological narrative, and let Amunhotep's architects and builders get on with their job. There'll be plenty of business and bustle around Thebes for the next few decades. We should get out of their hair. On the next episode, we're going back to the north of the country, where we will see the king heading off on a hunting trip, before getting involved in a very curious diplomatic arrangement. You see, it's time for another marriage, a diplomatic wedding that will strengthen the bond between Egypt and one of its mighty neighbours. Join me soon for episode 97. See you then. Oh, one more thing. I've got a special announcement coming up. Keep your eye on the podcast feed for an opportunity you won't want to miss. I'm not going to spoil anything, except to say it might be worth clearing your calendar for January 2019 just in case you want to take a trip. The History of Egypt podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. If you are looking for some more history content, check out David Crowther's History of England. In a podcast covering the story of Albion, from the age of Anglo-Saxons to the end of the Victorian era, it is a sweeping tale, epic in its ambitions. I recommend you give it a listen. Also, Thanks to Ryan Stitt from the History of Ancient Greece, who provided the voice of Strabo for today's episode. If you're not listening to the History of Ancient Greece, you're missing out. Like me, Ryan is academically trained in his field, and he brings this expertise to the ancient Greeks with passion, clarity, and excitement. From the Bronze Age to the coming of Rome, Ryan is on a huge trip into the lands of the Aegean. That's the History of Ancient Greece by Ryan Stitt. Check it out. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.